Tonight we begin and hope to get through two of these very exciting chapters in 2 Kings chapter 15 and chapter 16. To me, the remarkable thing about these chapters is, first of all, there are two very interesting kings of Judah presented to us, one named Azariah, also known as Uzziah, the other one known as, he's in chapter 16, known as Ahaz. These two kings are very, very interesting. But not only are we introduced to these two fascinating kings of Judah, again, that's the southern kingdom of the two, but in the northern kingdom of Israel, what we find is a scene of total political and social and, of course, especially spiritual chaos. They're really reaping what they've sown, and these are the closing days of the northern kingdom. Just to sort of give you a reminder ahead of time, we'll be getting into this the next time we get together in chapters 17 and 18. But the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom of the, two, of the 12 tribes, they were conquered by the Assyrians more than a hundred years before the southern kingdom of Judah fell. And we'll see more about that next week. But anyway, the, the first king we come to tonight in chapter 15 is actually not a king of Israel, but a king of the southern kingdom of Judah. His name was Azariah. Let's take a look here at verse 1. In the 27th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Azariah, the son of Amaziah, king of Judah, became king. He was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Amaziah had done, except that the high places were not removed, the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places." The reign of Azariah, now let me again remind you of something I mentioned at the very beginning. He is also called Uzziah. That's the name by which most people know him in the Bible. Second Chronicles and Isaiah both refer to him as Uzziah. And of course the name Uzziah and Azariah are very close. They're just variant spellings and pronunciations of the same name. Anyway, his reign was largely characterized by the good that he did in the sight of the Lord. And his goodness and godliness was rewarded with a long reign of 52 years. Now you have to think about this. That's a very long time for any king to reign, isn't it? 52 years he reigned over the kingdom of Judah. But Azariah came to the throne in a very difficult era. You see, the very tragic events that brought King Amaziah's reign to an end meant that Jerusalem was completely in disarray. And a very significant section of its protective wall was destroyed. The, the temple and the palace were in low repair and in fact robbed a bit. And many of the uh, inhabitants of Jerusalem had been taken away as hostages to Israel. But yet, at this very low point in the history of Judah, God raised up this great king known as Azariah. And Second Chronicles chapter 26 tells us much more about his successful reign. I'm just going to summarize some of the things we learned from Second Chronicles 26. It tells us that Azariah, or Uzziah, that he began his reign when he was only 16 years old, and that he reigned during the ministry of Zechariah the prophet. It tells us that he defeated the Philistines and took many of their cities, and he also kept the neighboring group of the Ammonites under tribute to him. It tells us that he was uh, internationally famous as a strong king, and that he was a very ambitious builder and very skilled in agriculture. 
He gave very special attention to these practical things for the economy and the social welfare of the southern kingdom of Judah. But he also built up and organized the army, and he introduced several new items of military technology. You can find all of this in Second Chronicles chapter 26. And so he was a man of great accomplishment, great godliness, Although we do find this statement made of him in verse 4, and don't we find this to be a familiar statement by this time of the kings of Judah, where it says, uh, except that the high places were not removed. As with his forefather Joash, and with his father Amaziah, the reforms of Azariah did not reach so far as to remove these traditional places of sacrifice to the Lord. You see, God had commanded, God had instructed Israel, excuse me, well, all the people of God, the 12 tribes, at this time we're talking about the southern kingdom of Judah, but God had instructed his people under the law of Moses that they were to bring sacrifice only to the temple or to the tabernacle, that they weren't to make their own private altars and conduct their own private sacrifices. But nevertheless, the people persisted in this sin, and the very few were the kings who challenged it. And so uh, this was an apparent compromise, and it, it was you know, allowed by God. God didn't bring great judgment upon him, but it showed that his reforms were not as thorough as they could have or should have been. But now we come to verse 5. It says, Then the Lord struck the king so that he was a leper until the day of his death. So he dwelt in an isolated house. Oh, we stick right there. We're just reading this from Second Kings. We go, what's going on here? You have this king, he's a good king, and all of a sudden God strikes him with leprosy. It seems like God's dealing with this man very harshly. Again, we would have to go to Second Chronicles chapter 26 to learn more about the downfall of Azariah. Second Chronicles 26, especially at verse 15, tells us this about Azariah. It says that he was marvelously helped till he became strong. And then the chronicler goes on to describe this. He says, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. We're also told in Second Chronicles that the priest tried to stop him, but the king insisted on forcing his way into the temple to offer incense. And in this Azariah violated what had become an important general principle in God's dealing with Israel, that that no king should be a priest, and that the offices of prophet, priest, and king should not be combined into one man until the Messiah who fulfilled all three offices in one. Now, again, we take a fascinating look at this man Uzziah, who was a man of godliness and a blessed long reign and a prosperous reign and a militarily secure reign. And it was all good for him up until the point when his heart was lifted up with pride. And then he stepped into an area that he had no business stepping into. And that was assuming the role of a priest when God had commanded him to merely be a king. And when he went into the temple, the priest tried to stop him, but he would not be stopped. He barged in there to offer incense, and God struck him with leprosy right at that moment. Therefore, as it tells us here in verses 5 and 6, it says, So he dwelt in an isolated house. Azariah came into the temple as an arrogant king, but he left Indeed, Second Chronicles 26 tells us that he hurried to get out because the Lord had struck him. He left as a humbled leper. 
Isn't this amazing? Can't you just picture it in your mind? The proud, arrogant king walking into the temple. He's going to offer incense. You know, for years he had been watching the, the priests do this. And now he wanted to do it. And why shouldn't he do it? He was the king. He was in charge. Look at his success. Look at the honor. Look at how God had blessed him. Surely he could do these things. If the priest could do it, he could do it. And so he walks in with all this pride and this arrogance. And as he comes in into the temple, the priests try to stop him. They beg him to stop him. And he comes in with all this arrogance until, bam, God strikes him with leprosy. And then it tells us in 2 Chronicles 26 that he hurried to get out. He comes in with pride and arrogance. He runs out under the hand of God's judgment. And so it tells us here, going on in verse 5, it says, And Jotham the king's son was over the royal house, judging the people of the land. Now the rest of the acts of Azariah, and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Azariah rested with his fathers, and they buried him with his fathers in the city of David. Then Jotham his son reigned in his place. You see, The death of Azariah, again, also known as Uzziah, it contributed to the call of the prophet Isaiah. Do you remember that line from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1? In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. Now again, we have to think about this reign of Uzziah. He began his reign when he was only 16 years old. And then he reigned for 52 years. And overall, he was a good and a strong king who led Judah to many military victories. And he was an energetic builder and planner. Despite all this, Azariah had a tragic, tragic end. And it reminds us of something, doesn't it? Doesn't it remind us of the great importance of finishing well? Now, I know that when you speak to younger people, it doesn't have much of a resonance to talk about finishing well. They're they're rightly more concerned with starting well. But when you start getting up a few years, and I suppose I count myself somewhere in that neighborhood about now, you start thinking, am I going to be able to finish well? You know, you start well enough and you continue and you run the race for a while. But when you see others who do not finish well, you say, Lord, I don't want to be like Uzziah. I don't want to let pride go to my head. I don't want to get sloppy. I don't want to get careless. I don't want to get sinful. I don't want to neglect you. You start realizing the importance of saying, I've got to finish well. And you know, the the tragedy is, is there are many people who start out well, who do not finish well. And Uzziah is a great example of this. Now, if you're thinking of this in sort of a movie sense, the camera pulls away from the kingdom of Judah in the south. And now starting with verse 8 of chapter 15, it comes over northward to the kingdom of Israel, those ten northern tribes under the kingdom of Israel. And I'll tell you the general heading of the next uh, section that we're going to look at here in chapter 15, it's of utter chaos. Just take a look at it here. Starting now at verse 8, which will describe for us the short and evil reign of Zechariah. It says, In the 38th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, reigned over Israel in Samaria six months. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, as his fathers had done. 
And he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. Then Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck and killed him in front of the people, and he reigned in his place. Now the rest of the Acts of Zechariah, indeed they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. This was the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Jehu, saying, Your son shall sit on the throne of Israel to the fourth generation. And so it was. Now, this man, Zechariah, the son of Jeroboam, He is the fourth member of the dynasty of Jehu. We remember Jehu from our study several weeks ago. This man who came and was raised up by God as an instrument of God to bring his judgment against the house of Omri, of whom the most notorious king was King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And when he brought judgment against the house of Omri, Jehu had the opportunity to to be blessed and anointed and to have a secure dynasty over the northern kingdom of Israel. But Jehu sinned. Jehu turned his back on the God who called him, and God swore to Jehu that his dynasty would only last to the fourth generation, and Zechariah was the fourth. I wonder if Zechariah knew that promise. I wonder if he thought about it. I wonder if he mocked it. I wonder if he was afraid of it. I don't really know. But the reign of Zechariah was both short and wicked. And he continued in that state-sponsored idolatry that was begun by his father and his forefathers before him. And then notice how he died. It tells us right there in verse 9, it says, uh, excuse me, verse 10, it says, And Shalom, the son of Jabesh, conspired against him and struck him and killed him in front of the people, and he reigned in his place. Zechariah was so despised by his own people that Shalom was able to do this. And this was the end of the dynasty of Jehu, which began with such potential, but ended, just as God had foretold it, in great darkness. And so this is, again, amazing. Uh, I just want to give you a preview here of the next 43 years in the kingdom of Israel, okay? In the next 43 years, you're going to have six different kings come and go in rapid succession in the northern kingdom of Israel. Well, let's take a look at the next one. If the reign of Zechariah was brief, look at the reign of Shalom in verse 13. Shalom, the son of Jabesh, became king in the 39th year of Uzziah, king of Judah, and he reigned a full month in Samaria. For Menahem, the son of Gadi, went up from Tizrah and came to Samaria and struck Shalom, the son of Jabesh, in Samaria and killed him, and he reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Shalom and the conspiracy which he led, indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. Then from Tizrah, Menham attacked Tifshah and all who were there and its territory, because they did not surrender, therefore he attacked it. All the women who were there, he ripped open. Well, Shalom, he only reigned for a month. At least the dynasty of Jehu lasted four generations. The dynasty of Shalom lasted four weeks. And it just tells us that the rest of the acts of Shalom, well, he has no moral comment to make on the very brief reign of Shalom. Perhaps he didn't show himself to be good or bad in the very short reign that he had, but the violence that marked his rise to power and his fall from power shows that he did not reign with the blessing of God. And then we see the violence that follows in this horrible period of Israel's history where Menha attacked Tifshah, and because they did not surrender, he attacked it. And all the women who were there with child, he ripped open. 
This horrible brutality was commanded by Menham, who became the next king of Israel. This shows us the depth of brutality and ungodliness of the times. I mean, when a man this violent, this brutal, this ungodly gets lifted up to be the next king of Israel, you know how wicked the times are. So, verse 17, the summary of the reign of Menahem. In the 39th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Menahem, the son of Gadi, became king over Israel and reigned ten years in Samaria. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not depart all his day from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. Pol, king of Assyria, came against the land, and Menahem gave Pol a thousand talents of silver that his hand might be with him to strengthen the kingdom under his control. And Menahem exacted the money from Israel, from the very wealthy, from each man fifty shekels of silver, to give the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria turned back and did not stay there in the land. And the rest of the acts of Menahem and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Menahem rested with his fathers, then Pekahiah, his son, raised in a, reigned in his place. So Menahem, the son of Gadi, became king over Israel, and his reign was typical in the kings of Israel in that it was both evil and it was a continuation of the state-sponsored idolatry of Jeroboam. Now again, let's remind ourselves, what's happening in the southern kingdom of Judah at this time? Well, at this time, it's the general godly and good reign of Uzziah, right? These are the 52 years of Uzziah's reign, while in the northern kingdom of Israel, it's sort of like rent-a-king or king of the month almost. They're going through the kings so quickly here. But we see what else is going on in the geopolitical situation at the time. The Assyrian Empire is coming up to its full strength. And it's exercising its influence over all that part of the world. Now, the southern kingdom of Judah is too strong and too blessed by God to be uh, subjugated to the Assyrian Empire. But you see that the Assyrian Empire is exercising its influence over the northern kingdom of Israel so much so that King Menahem, he buys off the king of Assyria and he gives him great tribute, great money. He assesses a special tax upon the people of the land to pay off the king of Assyria so that he will not attack them and conquer them. So for all essential purposes at this time, the northern kingdom of Israel is not truly an independent kingdom at this time. It's under subjugation or under tribute to the empire of Syria. Well, he reigned 10 years, and then it says his son Pekahiah reigned in his place, starting here at verse 23. In the 50th year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekahiah, the son of Menahim, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned two years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who had made Israel sin. Then Pekah, the son of Ramalia, an officer of his, conspired against him and killed him in Samaria in the citadel of the king's house, along with Argob and Aria. And with him were fifty men of Gilead. He killed him and reigned in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Pekahiah and all that he did, indeed they are written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel. So the previous two kings before Menahem did not reign successfully enough to pass the kingdom on to a son or to another dynastic descendant. But at least Menahem reigned well enough and rule enough, long enough to pass the kingdom on to his son, Pekahiah. But his son was not a good man. 
It says that he did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel sin. This is a familiar refrain. You know how you like when you sing a song and you always come back to the chorus? This is the chorus of the song of the northern kingdom of Israel. They always continued in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that man who initially split the kingdom in two and set up the golden calves both in Dan and was it Bethel, the other place? I believe it was. And he commanded the people of the northern kingdom of Israel not to go to Jerusalem, but to worship at these shrines, which as we've discussed so many times before, was actually not the worship of a false god, but it was the false worship of the true god. And then what happened at the end of this man? Well, he was assassinated by this man, Pekah. It says that he killed him and reigned in his place. The blessing of God was obviously not upon Pekahiah, whose reign ended with assassination after only two years. This was the end of another brief dynasty and the start of a new dynasty, the dynasty of Pekah, which we begin in verse 27. In the 52nd year of Azariah, king of Judah, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 20 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, and he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, there's our chorus again, repeating all the time, who had made Israel sin. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and took Eon, Abel-Beth-Macha, Janoa, Kadesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried them captive to Assyria. Do you understand what just got said there? You see, the northern kingdom of Israel was essentially a client kingdom of the Assyrian Empire. You know, a tributary kingdom, a subject kingdom. But now the king of Assyria didn't even like that. He said, well, you know, I like this piece of land around Galilee. Let's just come and take a great big chunk of it. And that's what he did. Now, continuing on, it says, Then Hosea, the son of Elah, led a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramalia, and struck and killed him. So he reigned in his place in the 20th year of Jothan, the son of Uzziah. Now the rest of the acts of Pekah and all that he did, indeed, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. You know, we read about king after king after king ruling over this northern kingdom. It's sort of like a revolving door, right? They come and go, they come and go. There's no common thread between them, different kings, different dynasties. But you know the one common thread between them all? It says, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. You know, it was not one consistent dynasty. Like in the southern kingdom of Judah, you had the dynasty of David. It was the throne of David. It was all of his descendants. But dynasties came and go in the northern kingdom. If there was any one common dynasty that reigned in the northern kingdom, it was the dynasty of evil. It was the dynasty of rebellion against God. Each was evil and each continued in the state-sponsored idolatry in Israel. And so... It was so bad that eventually Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, came and took. This Assyrian king, unlike in the days of Menahem, would not be paid off by the king of Israel. He came and took some of the best land of the kingdom of Israel, including much of the northern part of the kingdom. And so uh, these were very dark days for Israel. The territory of this northern kingdom was now reduced to a tiny kingdom only about 30 miles wide by about 40 miles long. It was a very, very small place. 
And it says, in fact, that he even carried them captive to Assyria, if you notice that. You see, this was the official state policy of the Assyrian Empire. When they conquered a land, if it was necessary, they relocated by force the best and the brightest of the conquered nation and brought them to Assyria. This practice is going to be repeated a few times regarding the northern kingdom of Israel, but it will also be exercised by the Babylonians regarding the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, let me just say one thing here. If you have the empire of Assyria exercising such violent influence upon the northern kingdom of Israel, you can imagine what it's like in the southern kingdom of Judah at this time, right? It's a frightening time. You have a mighty empire conquering the kingdom right above you, your brothers, and you're wondering what will happen to us. So this was a time of great fear and great need to trust in the Lord for the southern kingdom of Judah. Well, in any regard, it says that Pekah's reign didn't last long. We're told that Hosea, the son of Elah, led a conspiracy against Pekah, the son of Ramalia, and struck and killed him. And this was another king and another dynasty to end with assassination. This, again, is a powerful demonstration of the great instability in the northern kingdom. Well, do you see how it was here, just king after king? What did we have, five quick kings of Israel here? We had a Zechariah, we had Shalom, we had Menahem, we had Pekahiah, and we have Pekah over and over again, just sort of the revolving door of evil in the northern kingdom of Israel. Striking. But as you notice, as these wicked kings continue, and the blessing of God is not strong in the northern kingdom, they lose more of their land, more of their security, more of their stability, more of their blessing, eventually, in not a very long time after the reign of Pekah, they will be reduced to nothing. The northern kingdom will be totally gone, conquered by the Assyrians, but we'll get into that in our next study. Now, the camera in verse 32 turns back to the southern kingdom of Judah, where we're concerned about the son of Uzziah, the son of Azariah. Pretty tough when your father has a 52-year reign that ends with such tragedy, right? It ended with this great tragedy of the leprosy and the dying in the isolated house. But look what happened here beginning at verse 32. We read, In the second year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jerusa, the daughter of Zadok. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. However, the high places were not removed. And the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. He built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Now the rest of the acts of Jotham and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? Well, isn't it refreshing after reading about this revolving door of evil in the northern kingdom, we finally have to come back down to the southern kingdom to get a king that's godly. He stands in stark contrast to the evil done by the previously mentioned kings of Israel. And among the kings of Judah, at least, some of them were good and godly kings. And this man did according to all that his father Uzziah had done. I want you to notice something, though. You see a familiar pattern here manifested both in the kingdom of Israel and in the kingdom of Judah. 
where the sons reigned as the fathers before them. Well, it certainly wasn't uh, concretely predetermined. It wasn't like, well, if you had a wicked father, you'd have a wicked son. Sometimes there were exceptions to this, right? Sometimes you had a godly king who had a wicked son. And sometimes you had a wicked king who had a godly son. But many times you find that the godly king had a godly son and the wicked king had a wicked son. It shows us the great influence that a father has upon the son. It shows us the great influence that one generation has upon the other generation. And it was manifested in the days of Jotham in that he had rebuilt the upper gate of the house of the Lord. And that's mentioned there in verse... 36, where, 35, where it says, he built the upper gate of the house of the Lord. Again, a positive sign in Judah. When these kings were concerned about the house of the Lord, it reflected some measure of spiritual revival. Now, I want you to notice something here in Jotham. In particular, when it says that he built the upper gate of the house of the Lord, when you start getting into what that really means, both in archaeology and in the original Hebrew, it seems that Jotham rebuilt a link between the temple and the palace. In other words, he wanted to have free access from his own house to the house of the Lord. And isn't that a positive sign? He's building something that will link and make a better connection between the royal house and the temple of the Lord. It's almost as if he said, I want to be more regular at the temple. I want to to worship at the temple more. I want to be around there more. I am going to strengthen the link between the temple and the palace. Now, his father Azariah or Uzziah misunderstood the link between the royal house and the house of God, right? He wanted an improper link. But many kings before him wanted no link between the house of the king and the house of God. Here it seems that that Jotham had the right idea, a proper link, where the temple didn't belong to the king, but there was a firm link between the two, so that the king could participate in what was going on at the temple in an appropriate way, not in an inappropriate way. You know, you have to say, we don't read a lot about Jotham here, right? But Jotham is one of the only Hebrew kings from Saul all the way down against whom God has nothing to record uh, in a negative way, except that he didn't remove the high places. Uh, Other than that, there's nothing negative about him. So, remarkable. A good king, often underrated. Nevertheless, God will chasten them for their partial disobedience. Look at it here, starting at verse 37. In those days, the Lord began to send Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, against Judah. So Jotham rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David his father. Then Ahaz, his son, reigned in his place. You see, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer of Second King tells us that it was the hand of the Lord that sent these foreign leaders against the troubled kingdom of Judah, or the kingdom of Judah that was troubled by these foreign leaders. It says that the Lord began to send them. This was only the beginning. If Judah and her kings responded to these chastening events in the right way, God would take note. But but if they hardened their hearts and rejected the correction of God, he would take note of that as well. 
I think what God was saying is his heart was rejoicing over the general obedience in the days of Uzziah, over the general obedience in the days of Jotham. But he said, not everything is right, and so I'm going to chasten you so you get even more right with me and you draw even closer to me. Listen, do you sometimes look at this and think it's unfair? We might say, God, why are you judging Judah so strictly when you seem to be so easy on the northern kingdom of Israel? And God would say, because Judah knows me better. Because they're more accountable. Because as this enduring principle, judgment begins at the house of God. And so he was chastening them. And everything would depend on how they responded to this chastening. Well, how did they respond? Actually, King Ahaz is not a very encouraging response as we begin here into chapter 16. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Ramalia. Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done. Now, we we had had a pretty good run of good kings, hadn't we, in the southern kingdom of Judah? But now, boom, here with this man Ahaz, we have a man who was more like the northern kings of Israel than the southern dynasty of Judah. It briefly describes for us the reign of what I would think is perhaps the worst king of Judah, this man Ahaz. Whereas many of the previous kings fell short in one area or another. What was the common area that we see many of these kings failing? It says, well, they still allowed the sacrifice and the incense to be burnt on the high places. You know, there was a good reign, but he wasn't fully obedient in this area or that. But instead of Ahaz, it simply said he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. And it says, he did not do as was right in the sight of the Lord as his father David had done. Let me remind you, Ahaz had plenty of good examples. His own father was a good example for him, right? His grandfather Uzziah was a good example for him. Historically, David was a good example for him. Ahaz rejected these godly examples and he walked in his own way. So look at it here, verse 3. You're going to be shocked by this idolatry. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, and under every green tree. Ahaz not only rejected the godly heritage of David, he embraced the ungodly ways of the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. You see, the southern kingdom of Judah had a mixture of godly and ungodly kings. The northern kingdom of Judah had only ungodly kings, and Ahaz followed their pattern. You know, this is the first instance that we find where it's specifically said in the books of the kings where Judah imitated Israel's apostasy. If you want to see a good description of the apostasy of this time, you could turn to Micah chapter 7, verses 2 through 7, where it describes just the great abominations that took place during this time. We don't have time for it this evening, but you can just see in these very gripping, deep passages from the minor prophets, you see some of the wickedness that went on in this time. But the text tells us itself right here in verses 3 and 4 that he was so bad, as it says here, that he made his son pass through the fire in verse 3. Do you understand what that describes? This describes Ahaz's participation in the worship of Molech, the pagan god 
or perhaps it would be more accurate to describe him as a demon, because that's what he was. The pagan demon Molech was worshipped by heating a metal statue representing the god until it was red hot, and then by placing a living infant on the outstretched hands of the statue, while beating drums drowned out the screams of the child while it burned to death. This man Ahaz put his own son upon the burning hot hands of Molech. Let me tell you something. In Leviticus chapter 20, God pronounced a death sentence against all who worship Molech. This is what it says in Leviticus 20. He says, I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from among his people because he has given some of his descendants to Molech to defile my sanctuary and to profane my holy name. I have to say that it's very sad to say that even a man as great as Solomon was associated with Molech worship and built a temple to this idol. And one of the great crimes of the northern tribes of Israel was their worship of Molech, and it led to the Assyrian captivity that we're going to read about the next time we come together in 2 Kings chapter 17. And we're going to see even future examples of this Molech worship among the tribes that made up the southern kingdom of Judah. Therefore, look at the idea here as it continues on in these verses. It says, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. You see, the Canaanite nations that occupied Canaan before the time of Joshua also practiced this terrible form of human sacrifice and child sacrifice. And what did God do to those Canaanite nations? He judged them and he cast them out. Now, what will he do to the tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah if they continue in those same Canaanite sins? He will cast them out as well. By the way, this reminds us of something that maybe I should just throw out as a reminder. It reminds us that the war against the Canaanites in the book of Joshua, as terrible and as complete as it was, and let me be honest with you, the warfare described in the book of Joshua is terrible. They were commanded to go in there and to destroy entire cities. Men, women, children, and even animals. As terrible as those wars against the Canaanites were, they were not racial wars. God's judgment did not come upon the Canaanites through the armies of Israel because of their race, but because of their sin. And if Israel harbored the same sin, they would face the same judgment. So please understand that. There were terrible wars of judgment that God uniquely commanded the kingdom of Israel to carry out against those Canaanite peoples. But nobody should think for a moment that those were racial wars. Those were wars not against race, but against sin. And if Israel practiced the same sin, they would face a similar judgment. Going on now to verse 5. It says, Then Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. At that time, Rezin, king of Syria, captured Eloth for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Eloth. Then the Edomites went to Eloth and dwelt there to this day. So this was part of Pekah's anti-Assyrian policy in the northern kingdom of Israel. 
He thought that if he could defeat Judah, Syria and Israel together could make an effective stand against the growing power of the Assyrian Empire. Now, you and I have already read that that didn't work, right? That the Assyrian Empire just kept gathering strength. But before he was defeated in this, that's what this king of Israel thought. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to dethrone Ahaz and they wanted to set up a Syrian king over Judah, a certain man called the son of Tabeel. It's described for us in Isaiah chapter 7. Matter of fact, it's very interesting to study 2 Chronicles chapter 28 because it tells us some of the terrible losses that Judah endured when the Syrians and the people of Israel came down from the south and attacked the southern kingdom of Judah. They they suffered terrible losses from this attack. King Ahaz lost 120,000 Judean soldiers and 200,000 civilian hostages in these battles with Israel and Syria. That's in 2 Chronicles chapter 28, verses 5 through 8. It was a very dark time for Judah. It, it even looked like the dynasty of David would soon be extinguished, as so many dynasties in the northern kingdom of Israel had been ended. And so God uh, had his hand in it all, nevertheless, as it says right there in verse 6, It says, excuse me, in verse 5, they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. You see, the combined armies of Syria and Israel were strong enough to capture many of the cities of Judah, but they were not strong enough to defeat Jerusalem and overthrow the government of Ahaz, as wicked as it was. Why did God still protect the government of Ahaz? Because as wicked as this man was, he was the dynasty of David. And God had swore to David that he would have a special blessing on his dynasty. And in fact, who would eventually come forth from the dynasty of David? The Messiah himself. This dynasty has to be preserved at least until the Messiah comes. And so it's very interesting in this historical context. I told you that Isaiah chapter 7 fills in some of the details of the time. Do you know that very famous passage in Isaiah chapter 7 where it speaks of Emmanuel and the coming person? It's disused in the announcement of this very time. The Emmanuel sign came from Isaiah to King Ahaz during this joint Israeli-Syrian invasion. And as the following verses reveal, Ahaz refused to trust in the Lord and instead he put his trust in the king of Assyria. Yet for the sake of David... God would not allow this disastrous attack upon Judah to prevail. He would not allow this satanic plot against the messianic dynasty of David to succeed. You see, uh, Isaiah had a message to Ahaz. He assured the wicked king, who by the way didn't really even listen to this, he assured him that there would be a remnant left to return to the land and that a virgin would bear a son and so there would not fail to be a king upon the throne of David. The the dynasty could never be destroyed because of Emmanuel's kingdom, there would be no end. That was Isaiah's word to King Ahaz in this context. Well, in the midst of all this trouble, look at who Ahaz trusts, starting now at verse 7. So, Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. You know, you can hardly read those words without spitting them in your mouth, right? 
How does it feel to hear a king of Judah, a descendant of David, say to the evil king of the empire of Assyria, I am your servant and your son? Now, I want you to know something. Before Ahaz did this, Isaiah offered him a sign for assurance in God's help in the struggle against the combined armies of Israel and Syria. Do do you know what the promise was? The the sign for assurance was that a virgin would would bear. And it happened, and then eventually it had its eventual glorious fulfillment in the birth of Jesus Christ. But Ahaz rejected this sign. And look at what he says here to the king of Assyria in verse 7. I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me. Ahaz surrendered to one enemy in order to defeat another. Now, you know what I think is so tragic about this? What if he would have said this to the Lord? What if he would have gone to the Lord and said, Lord God, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me. Would the Lord not have stretched forth his hand and saved him at that moment? Instead, he ran off to the wicked king of the empire of Assyria. And so, what did he do? Well, going on here now, verse 8, it tells us that, And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasures of the king's house and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria heeded him, for the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it and carried its people captive to Kerr and killed Rezin. So essentially, Ahaz made Judah a subject kingdom to Assyria. Ahaz now took his orders from the Assyrian king and he sacrificed the independence of the kingdom of Judah. Man, we can only wonder what blessing might have come if Ahaz would have surrendered and sacrificed to the Lord that he did with the same energy when he surrendered and sacrificed to the Assyrian king. When anybody comes to God and appeals to them on this basis, when anybody calls upon the name of the Lord saying, I am your servant and your son, come up and save me, God will answer. It is true that the Assyrian king answered and delivered Ahaz, but it was a very short-lived deliverance. You know, there is such a thing as sort of the devil's deliverance where you can sort of strike a bargain with the devil. And he'll give you a deliverance after a fashion, but there's no peace in it, there's no joy in it. It's a deliverance that just leads to a greater bondage. That's exactly what Ahaz did. We would call it, he went from the frying pan, oh, I'm out of the frying pan, isn't that wonderful? And he went into the fire. Delivered from the frying pan, but now delivered into the fire. Now again, you just have to look at this and sort of clear your throat and say, isn't it sad? how different Ahaz was from his great ancestor David. What did David say? He said, In my distress I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God. Even his wicked grandson Manasseh, later on Ahaz, would seek the Lord late in his years. But Ahaz seemed determined to fill up the full measure of his sins. Well, how bad can it get? I told you that I think this is probably the worst king Judah ever had. Look at verse 10. Now King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, and saw an altar that was at Damascus. 
And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest the design of the altar and its pattern, according to all its workmanship. Then Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz came back from Damascus. Now, it was unusual for the kings of Judah to make official visits to other kingdoms. They generally stayed within the borders of the promised land. But this was much more than a visit. This was an official act of submission from Ahaz unto Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria. You know, you've probably seen it in the movies, right? Those kind of mafia movies where the people have to come and kiss the ring of the godfather, you know, and promise their obedience to the man and all of that. That's basically what Ahaz is doing to Tiglath-Pileser right here. He's coming and submitting himself and showing, oh yes, we're really your kingdom. You're my boss. You're my, my master, my lord. I take all my, my answers from you. He's doing this as an official act of submission. And when he is there in Damascus, what does he do? He happens to go to a, well, you might call it a church service in Damascus, right? He goes to the temple of one of the gods there. And he sees an altar that's at Damascus. And he says, man, I like the way that altar looks. Let me sketch out a little design of it and send it back to my guys in Jerusalem. And we can make our own kind of altar after the same pattern. So using the plans that were sent from Ahaz, Uriah imitated the pagan altar at Damascus. And he had it ready by the time that Ahaz returned from the Syrian capital. Now, he did this for two reasons. First, he did it to please his lord, Tiglath-Pileser. This is the way I imagine it in my mind. I can't prove this from the Bible, but isn't it entertaining to think about these kind of things? I think there they are, you know, Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, and there's the king of Judah, Ahaz. And Tiglath-Pileser looks at that altar in Damascus and he says, man, I kind of like the way that altar looks. So instantly, what does Ahaz do? Ooh, I like it too. Wow, that's the best altar I've ever seen in my life. Well, let me draw a picture. You know, I'm going to make an altar like that back in Jerusalem. You like that altar, Tiglath-Pileser? We'll make an altar just like it. It just has that sort of, that oily, that that, that terrible flattery and and, 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 what just has a bad feel all about it. But you have to say this. It does seem like Ahaz wanted to incorporate the latest trends in altar design into the national worship of Judah. You see, 2 Chronicles chapter 28 explains to us why King Ahaz was attracted to worship what he saw in Damascus. Let me read to you 2 Chronicles 28.33. For he sacrificed to the gods in Damascus which had defeated him. For he said... Because the gods of the kings of Syria help them, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were the ruin of him and of all Israel. Did you hear what I just read to you from 2 Chronicles 28.33? Ahaz goes to Syria and he says, You know what? The Syrians really whooped us. They really beat us bad. You know, if it wasn't for Tiglath-Pileser of the Assyrian Empire, we would have been destroyed by the Syrians. It seems like the gods of the Syrians answer their prayers. There's something about the gods of the Syrians that I like. And that's why he wanted to copy their altars. That's why he wanted to copy their worship. And I just bring it right down here to the 21st century. 
This explains today why many churches put their trust in the tools, in the techniques, and in the principles of worldly success. They think that the gods of Damascus will give them victory. This is sort of an introduction of the altar of a heathen shrine into the holy temple of Jerusalem. It reminds us of how many of the things in the modern religious observances we've borrowed from paganism. Listen, the world has no right to go to, excuse me, the church has no right to go to the world for its methods and principles. And I'll tell you what, I think that too often in the church today, too often in the fancy seminars that people put on, in the latest solutions that they have, well, we'll fix up your church, we'll make it great, we've got the plan, we've got the program, you know, we can revolutionize it all. Man, it just smacks of going after the gods of Damascus. But then you have to say, the end of verse 11 tells us that Uriah the priest built an altar. Now, we have to say, King Ahaz bore the greater blame in the matter. But the high priest Uriah also bore significant blame in the replacing of the Lord's altar with this one of pagan design. You know, you could say that the high priest was sort of like the, well, you could say he was the worship leader for the whole nation. And now Ahaz says, let's do it. And Uriah says, great, I'll do it. So look at how it goes here. Starting now at verse 12, we will read an extended passage all the way through verse 20. Starting now at verse 12. And when the king came back from Damascus, the king saw the altar. And the king approached the altar and made offerings on it. So he burned his burnt offering and his grain offering. And he poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offering on the altar. He also brought the bronze altar, which was before the Lord, from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and he put it on the north side of the new altar. Then King Ahaz commanded Uriah the priest, saying, On the the great new altar burn the morning burnt offering, the evening grain offering, the king's burnt sacrifice, and his grain offering, with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and sprinkle on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice. And the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire by. Thus did Uriah the priest according to all that King Ahaz commanded. And King Ahaz cut off the panels of the carts and removed the lavers from them. And he took down the sea from the bronze oxen that were under it, and he put it on a pavement of stones. He also removed the Sabbath pavilion which they had built in the temple, and he removed the king's outer entrances from the house of the Lord on account of the king of Assyria. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaz, which he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? So Ahaz rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. Then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. You hardly know where to begin with this, do you? First, in the early verses here, starting at verse 12, we see that Ahaz served as a priest at the altar of his own design. It says, so he burned his burnt offering and his grain offering and poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of his peace offering on the altar. You know, since he created his own place of worship, it also made sense that he would disregard God's command that a king must not serve as a priest, right? If you're going to make your own altar, your own soul scene for worship, then you may as well be your own priest. 
Ahaz's grandfather, Azariah, or Uzziah, he dared to enter the temple and serve God as a priest. Yet at least Azariah falsely worshipped the true God. Ahaz falsely worshipped a false God of his own creation. He was wildly experimenting, doing whatever he could to bring in whatever eclectic things from other places he could into the new spiritual life of Judah. He was like the Athenians in Acts chapter 17 who spent all their time talking about new things. That's what obsessed King Ahaz. But we also read in these verses that Uriah the priest did according to all that King Ahaz commanded. Uriah not only allowed Ahaz to do this, he participated in these evil and idolatrous plans. Now, this was a dramatic contrast. Do you remember the priests in the days of King Uzziah? What did they do when he went into the temple to burn incense? They stopped him. They tried to push him out. King Ahaz, excuse me, King Uzziah had to fight through the priest to do his sin. When King Ahaz wanted to sin, the priests were standing by applauding him. The entire way. And it says here that all of these kings, excuse me, all of these changes were made on account of the king of Assyria. They're made to please his new lord, his new master, the king of Assyria. And so it says that he started destroying things that were already in the temple. He cut off the panels of the carts and removed the lavers and did all of this and all of that. He changed whatever he could. He changed the construction of the temple. He remodeled. He refashioned. But it was all, all after he had done in his own image. We remember something in this. We remember that all of this took place at the temple that Solomon had built unto the Lord. It was a true location. It was a godly location. Many godly things had happened at that place in the hundreds of years before it. But listen, the mere location didn't make it the house of God. Sometimes idols are worshipped at a house that was once dedicated to the true God. And we read at the end of these verses all the way down into verse 20. Now the rest of the acts which Ahaz which he did. So ended perhaps the worst king of Judah. Micah, who prophesied during the reign of Ahaz, describes the man who works to do successfully evil with both his hands. The idea is that the man pursues evil with all his effort and with both his hands. He may very well have had King Ahaz in mind when Micah spoke forth that prophecy about the man who seeks to do evil so energetically it's as if he puts both his hands to the work. But I have to tell you that in many ways I think Ahaz is a strong warning to our generation. I believe King Ahaz is a warning in the sense that he could be considered a church leader in the 21st century. You see, based on his admiration of the altar of Damascus, you could say that King Ahaz was a man with an artistic sense of style, right? He could look at, man, I like the look of that thing. Man, that's good. Wouldn't that look good in Jerusalem? Ahaz also seemed to be very impressed with technology. Apparently, according to 2 Kings chapter 20, we'll get to there eventually, it was apparently Ahaz 
who introduced the Babylonian innovation of the sundial to Jerusalem. He brought in this new technology. So he had an artistic sense of style. He loved technology. He was also in love with innovation and new things, and he didn't hesitate to bring those innovations into worship. At the same time, Ahaz seemed to be a very nice man. We're going to see something about his son next week. Excuse me, in a couple weeks. It'll be all the way until 2 Kings 21. King Ahaz seemed to be a nice man in the sense that his grandson Manasseh persecuted the prophets and persecuted the people of God. You don't read of any of that in the reign of Ahaz, do you? Apparently, King Ahaz didn't persecute anybody. You know, live and let live. They want to worship God, fine. I'm just going to go after my own thing. So he was a nice man. Ahaz also had the advantage of many great prophets and messengers. He had Isaiah during his time. He had Micah during his time. Ahaz had the blessing of a great deliverance from God when God spared Jerusalem and Judah from total defeat when the armies of Israel and Syria came against them. And Ahaz had the influence of a godly father and a godly heritage from the line of David. I got to say, I look at this, and I find that disturbingly so, as I look at the church scene at this early part of the 21st century, I wonder if this isn't the, the church age marked by Pastor Ahaz. Right? Artistic sense of style. In love with technology. In love with innovation. Nice men. Uh, many great prophets in their midst. Blessings of great deliverance. And the influence of godly forefathers But all of that did not make a difference in the life of King Ahaz. And what was the difference? Why didn't all of those things, which could be good in a man, why didn't all those things make a difference in the life of King Ahaz? It was because he had no relationship with God. He was interested in spiritual things. And he would even make great spiritual sacrifices. Listen, you want to talk about making great spiritual sacrifices? Didn't he sacrifice his son to Molech? He was interested in spiritual things, and he was willing to make great spiritual sacrifices, yet he destroyed the link that his father Jotham made between the palace and the temple. That great link that Jotham made, we were told in those verses that I read from verses 12 to 20, that Ahaz destroyed it. Listen. You destroy that relationship with God and you have all this wonderful technology, all these wonderful innovations, all this enterprising spirit, all this niceness, all this willingness to make spiritual sacrifices and without that vital connection with God, it gets you nowhere. And it was all evidenced because he put his trust in himself and in man instead of in the living God who reigns from heaven. Therefore, you would have to say, all in all, the reign of King Ahaz was a disaster. Probably one of the worst kings of Judah. And I think that he stands as a tremendous warning to the church of the 20th century. You have your artistic sense of style. You have your technology, and we have it in spades today, don't we? You have your innovation. You you, you have your new things. 
You have your niceness. You have the advantage of many great prophets and many great deliverances and many great forefathers before us. Without a vital connection with God, we become like Ahaz instead of like one of the good kings of Judah. Let's pray. Father, uh, to me, I just come with such a sober end here to Ahaz. and I pray, Lord, that you would warn me, that you would warn us, that you would send out a warning to our generation, Lord. These great tools, these great advantages that you give us here in the 21st century. Lord, we realize that without this vital connection to you, they, they heap up condemnation upon ourselves. We don't want to be the Ahaz generation, Lord. Lord, we want to be the David generation, the, the godly generation that seeks you. Help us to do that, Lord. Help us to grab onto a godly heritage and to live it out, enduring unto the end. We pray this, Lord, thanking you for your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.